Well, good morning. Let us open our Bibles, which I trust you brought with you, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. We actually interrupted Jesus last time because he was in the middle of talking and we left off in the middle of his talk at uh, Luke 12:48. So we're going to pick up at verse 49 and finish off the chapter today, Lord willing. Luke 12 and verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there, Till you have paid the very last mite. I'm going to call this message Jesus the Divider. Jesus the Divider. Why is it that Jesus Christ, a good man, a good teacher, as people say, causes so much controversy? Why? You know, you could uh, be at a party or somewhere in a crowd, be in a crowded room, and just say so that everybody can hear. You know, Jesus says, and like E.F. Hutton, everybody stops to listen. Or, you know, say, you know, the Bible says, and immediately, you know what you've done? You've divided that room. It's interesting, isn't it? And the majority of the people don't want to hear the rest of that sentence. It's incredible. Uh, I have an interesting experience doing this in crowds, uh, and I thank the Lord for it. It's very unusual, but for the last three times that I've been called into jury duty, over the last about five or six years, um, you know, if you've been to jury duty, you know, you get up and the lawyers want to see what kind of a juror you're going to make and if you're going to be bad for their cause. And if you are, they dismiss you. So they ask you a lot of questions. Yeah, how many have been through that process before? You know, what, you know what I'm talking about? 
And ultimately, the kind of questions that they ask have to do with morals and ethics, right and wrong, don't they? And uh, it's been so exciting because the last three times I have been asked by one of the lawyers a question that when I answer it, I have to use the Bible. I mean, I, I don't have to make something up because the answer is clear from God's word. And I say so. And it's interesting to watch the reaction of the 200 plus jurors and the judge and the lawyers in the room. I'll often preface it by saying, no, now first of all, I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible. And the Bible says, blah, blah, blah. Silence, dead silence in the room. And uh, one time, the lawyer was a young woman and she actually came back and tried to convince me that I was wrong. Yeah. And we must have gone on for about five minutes. And I kept quoting the word of God. And I just, now in 1 Peter 2, it says, blah. And all of a sudden the judge interrupts and says, uh, <clears throat> you know, counsel, would you please come with me into the uh, back room? And so, and by the way, let me please explain. I don't go to these things, you know, loaded for bear, ready to start being a Jesus freak in front of everyone. It's unplanned. But when I'm asked a question about what's right and wrong, and the Bible is clear about it, I'm not going to pussyfoot around about it. And uh, so this one particular time, uh, all of the lawyers went in the back room with the judge, and we're all sitting out there kind of waiting, you know, about 10 minutes later, they all came out. We all rose, you know, and then sat down again. And uh, the lawyer sat down, and then the judge just very calmly said, uh, Mr. Bellis, we will no longer be needing your services. <laughs> the, the neat thing about that particular time was, as I was going out the back of the room, one dear lady was sitting by the uh, place I walked by and as I was going out the door, she said, I was praying for you. Isn't that great? So, now I don't know how many other believers there might have been in the room. I'll tell you, she was in the minority. But it's, it's amazing how just talking about Jesus will divide people, you know? And it's also interesting, unless you've lived under a rock this week, I'm sure you know all about Chick-fil-A. Okay. There you go. There's an example. Uh, the owner of this chain apparently uh, just made a statement to a very tiny uh, journal or paper or something, probably circulation of about 400, you know, it's a little, little Baptist journal, uh, where he just says uh, what the Bible has to say about marriage. He didn't say anything critical about anybody. He just said, we thank God, you know, that we have uh, our wives. We've been married to the same woman, you know, since day one. And we think it's great. Woo! You all know what's happened. The country has literally been divided in two, hasn't it? Over this issue. And I'll tell you, people don't just have an indifferent opinion. They're fired up. See... So Jesus, that's the fire Jesus is talking about, you see. 
the division he's talking about. When, when Jesus speaks, people have to take a stand. You can't, you can't sit on the fence. And we're seeing it right now before us. So that's what he means now in verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. And then later in 51, he says, do you suppose I came to bring peace? No, but division. The division, the fire. That, that's what he's talking about. The, the controversy that stirred up when people begin to follow him and believe him at his word, and they say so, most people don't like that. And so you've got division. And even in a family. Right now, I'll, I'll promise you, there are examples across the country of moms or dads with one view on this issue that I just talked about, and, you know, sons and daughters with the opposite, and within families, just like Jesus said, the prophecy is coming true. They're divided against each other. This is a prophecy, isn't it? Jesus said this will happen, and it's been happening ever since his resurrection. Now, He's not deliberately going around and getting people to argue. It's not that, uh, you know, he's going around and you, let you and him fight, you know. It's not that. It's simply because of three things. Number one, who he is. He's God. People don't like to hear that. Because if Jesus is God, you know what that means? That means they've got to deal with him. And people don't like to think about that. That's number one. It's who he is. And they want to get, no, I don't want to think about that. Number two, it's what he said. Jesus talks about an awful lot of uncomfortable things like sin and hell. Are those popular subjects? You know, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Maybe it's real, huh? And then finally, what he did. His death for me and for you. And his resurrection. These divide people. There's an immediate application here in the situation where Jesus is talking because the nation of Israel is going to divide. Those who follow Christ are going to be separated, you know, persecuted uh, from the rest of the nation. But it's the same today, as you all know. I want you to notice how strongly he feels here when he says this, in verse 49, what did he say? He says, I came to send fire, and how I wish it were already kindled. The fire hadn't started yet. He says, I wish it was started now. And then uh, in uh, verse uh, 50, he talks about this baptism. He says, uh, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am. You get that? Man, I want it to be done. He feels strongly about this stuff. You see, he doesn't want to see people fighting. He's not saying that. He wants the fire to begin because his sufferings will be over. He wants this baptism he's talking about. He wants to be uh, through with it. And by the way, the word that he uses there, he says, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. The word accomplished, he's not just saying there, man, I sure wish it was over. The word accomplished means uh, I can't wait until it's finished its work. It's not just I'm finished with my suffering. It's going to do something. And it'll be completed when I'm done. 
You understand? I will have accomplished something. You know what it is? It's getting you and me into heaven. How distressed I am. Interesting. Why does he use that word baptism to describe what he's... It's talking about his death. Why does he use the word baptism? It's unfortunate that when they translated uh, the Greek, sometimes they just leave a word alone. And that's what the Greek word is, baptizo. And so rather than translate it, they just use that word. And so now we have this kind of magical connotation about baptism, you know. It simply means to be immersed. That's it. He's about to be immersed in the anger of God. Can you imagine knowing you're about to die? You know you're going to die, and you know how you're going to die, and you know how you're going to suffer. But you're going to go ahead and go through with it anyway. And that suffering is nothing less than the infinite anger of God. That's what he's talking about. Can you imagine how he must feel knowing it's about to take place, but it hasn't yet? No wonder later he fell on his face and said, I'm troubled even to the point of death as he got nearer to the cross and anticipated what he was about to go through. Distressed, troubled, wow. And, and yet he's so alone. You know, even right here. There's nobody, no one understands what he's talking about when he talks about this baptism. He's all alone. No sympathy, no understanding uh, heart, no comfort, no help. You know, sometimes we complain when we have unshared sorrows, don't we? You know, sometimes you feel like nobody understands. Let me tell you, Jesus knows where you're coming from. You know, he, he, on the cross, he was forsaken by God. You can't say that. He did. There's a, a hymn. We don't have it in our hymnal, but I love the chorus on it. It says, uh, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. What a wonderful Savior. Man. Well, praise the Lord. His sufferings are over. He's risen. He's ascended on high. And he's coming back very soon. And so the fire that he talked about has been kindled. And as I said, we're seeing it more and more. By the way, the fire is going to grow more and more as we approach the end times. Two sides. Those who truly believe and trust in Jesus Christ and everybody else. And the interesting thing is Jesus is constantly uh, trying to separate the two. Why does he do that? You know, he did it in his ministry. He kept separating the multitude that was following him, uh, the goats from the sheep, those who were true disciples and those who weren't. The, the best example is John chapter 6. As he started teaching some hard things, or at least that's what the listeners thought. And it says, when he was done, many of his disciples no longer followed him. They left. You realize, that's a good thing. You realize that? It's, it's not a pleasant thing to do, but it's better that those disciples left Jesus. 
And then he turns to the, the uh, 12 and, and the ones remaining and he says, will you go also? There's the door. You know, politician wouldn't do that, right? You know, wait, wait, no, I didn't mean it. Let, let me rephrase it. You know, let me get my spin doctors out here and we'll present it in such a way that everybody likes it, right? No, he said, will you go too? Good old Peter, one of his high moments. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Isn't that good? Praise the Lord for Peter. But he was separate. He was dividing, you see. Why is it good? Listen. It's worse to be in the position where you think you're okay with God and you're not. Than to be a scoffer and a mocker and to know you're not okay with God. At least you know where you stand, right? But to be someone who, who goes to church, maybe. They read their Bible. Uh, they're nice people, but they're not saved. And then they die and find out with a big surprise that they were never saved. I, I can't think of anything worse. So Jesus was, you see, doing a good thing when he divided and when he does it today as well. Would it be interesting if Jesus uh, would visit the chapel? You know, walk down the center, and I go sit down. Probably bow down. You know? And everybody had the opportunity to go up and say, Lord Jesus, is my name in the book of life? Am I going to heaven? Would you do it? What do you think he'd say? He knows. You see, right here in this room, I don't know, but Jesus does, you see. And anybody who has false assurance and isn't really saved, his heart would go out. And the first thing he'd do is let them know where they really stand. Pick a crowded place. Uh, go down a street corner in, in Oakland or... or uh, uh, the cable car turnaround in San Francisco on Market Street, you know. There's a wonderful guy there. Every time you go, there's got a sign, you know, Jesus loves you. And he just stands there faithfully in the middle of the crowd. And uh, you, you can just see the people kind of, oh boy, you know, and they kind of give him a wide berth, you know. Dividing the crowd. Everybody, every once in a while, somebody will come up and say, keep it up, brother, you're doing a good job. You know, but not many. Real simple. You, you could stand on a, on a corner, and I know uh, at least Eric has done this uh, in, when he was in Brazil. A little street preaching, right? Go out and talk about Jesus before a crowd. Watch what happens. You know? Immediately, you've divided that, that group, just like Jesus. Actually, Jesus did it, but he did it through you. And you're going to have somewhere saying, man, praise the Lord. Here's a guy speaking out for Jesus. And then the most of them will be, oh, man, let me out of here. You know? As I thought about this, being a physicist, it reminded me, I know you think I'm crazy, of nuclear fission. <laughs> no, really. Nuclear fission, it's real simple. We're most familiar with it with uh, uranium. Uranium is a really big atom got 92 protons in the middle, 
And they found out in the 1930s, a very curious thing about it, if you hit that uh, atom of uh, uranium with a neutron, it splits in two under the right circumstances. And you get two new elements, two new atoms. Like uh, an atom of, say, uh, barium and an atom of krypton. It doesn't always split right down the middle. Sometimes you get a little bit bigger chunk and a little smaller chunk. In fact, it's called a cross-section. They figured it out, you know, what it most often splits into. But you see, Jesus and the Bible are, are like that little neutron coming in to the nucleus of that uranium. It splits, it divides, you see. And it, and it breaks a, a group of people up into two halves. Those who know Jesus and love him and love hearing about him and those who, you know, no, get that out of here. I don't want to hear it. Now, the thing about uh, uranium is generally it'll split into fairly even pieces. Not, not exactly, you know. If it's 92, like 60, 30, or, or 50, 40. But uh, when Jesus splits a crowd, it's not usually like that. You know, there's just a few believers and lots of unbelievers. I'm, I'm not making that up. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, now listen to these words. Jesus said, Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are that go in that way. It's crowded, man. It's a super highway. Okay? Now listen to what he says next. But narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And few there are that find it. Did you notice that? He didn't just say, few there are that go in that way. He said, there are few who find it. Is that interesting? Why did he say it that way? Is it because it's so hard to find? God's making it difficult for people to find him? Is that what he meant? No. What he's saying is, most people don't even bother looking. They don't even care. They're happy. You know, there's comfort in a crowd, isn't there? Hey, let's all go to hell together. You know? Six and a half billion people can't be wrong, right? You know what it says in Romans? Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Do you understand that? If all seven billion people on the earth got together and said, let's, let's vote on it, there is no hell. And you got seven billion people saying, that's right, amen. And God says, uh, excuse me, yeah, hell is real. And you're all headed there. Who's right? God. That's exactly right. It's not a democracy when it comes to truth. So you might call this spiritual fishing. Not fishing like, you know, a gone fishing. That's evangelism, spiritual fishing. Brace yourself. You know, real Christians, I keep using this word, I'm going to explain myself in a minute when I keep saying this, true Christians, real Christians. You know they stink to most people? You know that? We don't have B.O. That's not what I'm talking about. Listen to what the Bible says. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 
For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Talking about believers. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's the two groups again, huh? Those who are being saved, real believers, and those who are perishing, those who don't know God. To the one, that is to the unsaved people, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, to the believers, the aroma of life leading to life. Isn't that great? What a way to put it. He says, you know, you believers, you stink to the general populace. You know, like, whoo, get out of here. You know, but there's a little group. And man, you smell beautiful to them. And, and best of all, he, you know what he said there? He said, you smell beautiful to me. Because I see in you, my son, my lovely son. Okay, I said, I've been using this phrase, true, uh, true believers, real believers. Let me explain that. What does it mean to believe in the Bible? The word believe in the Bible is a little different from the way we use it. For example, uh, you might say, I believe one and one is two. Well, that's, that's good. I think that's probably true. But you might say, um, you know, I really believe that the Giants are going to win the World Series this year. I don't know if that's true or not, you see. Or sorry, Charlie. You know, I really believe the A's are going to win the series this year. <laughs> now, one of those is probably more probable than the other. But that doesn't mean it's true. You see? So the way we use the word believe, you have to be careful. Now, there are certain... Uh, Places where they have a thing called a catechism. You ever heard that? A catechism? You know. Like uh, one of them kind of goes this way. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And it goes on and on. And people memorize this. And then they say it. But you know what? There's something missing. They don't have God. Now, I'm not saying everybody who quotes that is not saved. I'm just saying there are a lot of them who just memorize words like that and they say them, but they're in the wrong group. They are not going to heaven. Believing biblically is a very special thing. You know, most people don't really understand what it means to believe in Jesus it's not like believing other things in, in the world. Let me, let me put it this way. Here's the way I'd say it. And when I say I believe this, I mean I really believe this, deep down inside. And that's the key. And you follow along with me and just see, you know, if, if you can relate to this or if I'm beginning to stink. I believe I'm a sinner with no hope, no way to help myself, and I deserve hell. For certain, right now, no excuse. Okay? I really believe that. Secondly, I believe that Jesus, God the Son, came, became a man, went to the cross, loved me so much that he paid the penalty in full right there on the cross for my sins, all of them, forever. I believe that. And I believe that trusting in that finished work that he did for me and giving my life to him 
trusting in him, my sins are forgiven forever. And starting then, which in my case was around Easter of 1972, my destination is heaven forever, and you can't change it. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you know, but just think, you know, be honest with yourself. Now, I, some of that stuff, I can't really agree with that. I'm, not, I'm basically a good person. You know, I've done some bad things, but uh, it's not that bad. Let's not talk about hell. I'm sorry, that's part of the equation. If, if, if you're not headed for hell, if you're not facing a terrible dilemma of perishing because of the things you've done, you don't need a Savior. And you certainly don't need Jesus. Because that's the only office that he's offering to you. But here's the other part, you see. It, it, you say, well, man, you know, how can you tell the difference? You, you say that, and somebody else says it, but, you know, look at their lives. Oh, okay, well, there's more here. You see, this is the kicker that most people don't really know about, certainly outside the church. When you believe that way, I just said, in your heart, and God, by the way, praise God, God sees it as soon as it happens. He's not out to lunch, you know. When you trust his son, he knows it. I mean, for real, not holding back. If you're holding back and say, well, you know, uh, I'm willing to give Jesus most of my life, but I want to hang on to this, you know, I'll be Lord of some of it, and he can be Lord of the rest. Uh-uh, don't work. Lord of all or not Lord at all. When God sees that open heart that just comes in complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, Lord, save me from my sin, God does something, and it's a big deal. Listen, Ephesians 1, first of all, says, <clears throat> when we believed, listen to this, this is a big deal. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do you understand that? The Holy Spirit. God, we're sealed. In other words, the moment you trust Christ for reals, let's use my son's expression, for reals, okay? God sees it, and he seals it forever so it can't change. That's the idea. Isn't that great? You can't go back on it. You can't lose it. You're not going to slip out of his hand. It's forever So that's the first thing. Next, we've, a lot of people have memorized this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe, there's that word again, on his name. But it goes on, listen. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What's that saying? That's saying God does another incredible thing. You have a new person, a new nature. He creates it right there at that moment. You, you, you don't see the two people, but every believer now has two natures, an old one and a new one. And because of the new nature, all of a sudden, you love God. You love his word. You love his people. You want to please him. You understand? The Bible says that. A new person. That's great. We're not talking about subscribing, you know, I believe in God Almighty and so on. No, 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 saying words. We're talking about a work of God. And it's real. You can see it. And God says you can. And he says, if you don't see the change in the person's life, 
then there's nothing there. Real simple. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, again, we know these verses, but there's one that we often leave out that is so cool. We know this. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died, and that he died for all, that they which live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5. Does that sound like a fair deal to you? You, you don't own your life anymore, you see? Jesus paid for it in full. It's his now. And you say, Lord, thank you. Now, my, I'm still living, but really I'm a dead man walking, so I belong to you. What do you want me to do? I'm living for you. That's a good deal. And then we skip a verse, and then we go down, and it says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. There's that new birth. You see, there's a new thing that God did there. Isn't that wonderful? But here's what I love. This is in between those passages. Therefore, talking about this is what it's like being a new creature. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What's that saying? It says, as Christians, now when we look at people, we see them differently. Isn't that right? And this is getting back to the reason we stink. Because now we see people as sinners for whom Jesus died. And we want them to be saved and we tell them about it. And every once in a while you get someone who listens, but most people don't want to hear that stuff. Because we see with new eyes now, you see. And the other thing it says, we see Jesus with new eyes. Now we don't see him the way we used to. We love him. Whom having not seen, you love. Do you love Jesus? Have you ever seen him? Right here? I know all about him. Now it's interesting, it's in, in this controversy lately, there's been a lot of people who said, and, and people say this a lot, well, I don't mind Jesus, just don't give me the Bible. Can you do that? People don't understand. You can't separate Jesus and the Bible. If you're going to have one, you've got to have the other. They're inseparable. First of all, listen. Do you know Jesus quoted the Bible more than anybody else in the Bible? Now, of course, he had the Old Testament, as we call it. That was the Bible then. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. But out of the 39 books in the Old Testament, Jesus quoted 27 of them. Isn't that cool? He quoted things like Deuteronomy. When's the last time you memorized a verse in Deuteronomy? And you know what is so neat to me? Jesus referred to some of the most mocked incidents in the Old Testament, clearly stating that they were true and they happened. Beginning with creation, he didn't bat an eye. In the beginning, he created them, male and female. Goes on to talk about marriage, even. He talked about uh, Cain and Abel. He talked about Noah and the ark. You know, those, those, that cute little plastic thing that you have on the floor with a little giraffe with his head sticking out of the little room, you know? It's real. It really happened. Jesus uses it to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. It's real. 
Poor deluded Jesus. You know, can you imagine him believing something like that? He, listen to this. He actually believed that Jonah was swallowed by the fish. Isn't that incredible? In fact, he refers to it in reference to his own resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, that's the way he says it. So, uh, there's an intimate leak there, you see, between Jesus and the Bible. But more importantly, <clears throat> he said the Bible spoke of him. Okay? He said to the Jews, you know, you guys search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which speak of me. He didn't deny the fact that the scriptures have eternal life. He's just saying, yeah, it's there and it's all about me. In fact, how can you read the Bible and not see me? I'm all over the place. They are they which speak of me. There are literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. Do you realize that? Predicting Jesus. Details about his life, his, his death, uh, his burial, his ministry, his birth. You name it. You can't, you can't, you can't have Jesus and not have the Bible. Listen. Think about it. Everything we know about Jesus comes from one place. Do you realize that? It's interesting that there are, you know, two really scanty accounts in ancient literature, both of which are probably fabricated or exaggerated or something. Um, one in a, in a uh, one of the Roman historians talking, you know, that this guy was uh, killed in the reign of somebody. That's it. And then I, I believe it's Josephus who says something about this uh, rabbi going around and teaching. And he says, this man, if he were a man, you know, blah, 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 like one sentence. And that's probably a gloss, the if, if he were a man thing. We have nothing uh, in historical records. Oh, no. You know, then you have the skeptic comes up and says, maybe Jesus didn't really exist. There's where the key comes, you see. Because the, the re only reliable document you have is right here, this. And that's your choice. You want, you want to believe Jesus didn't exist? Then throw this out the window. That's your choice. That's the difference between you and me. Okay? Or you can say, you know, I think that book's right. If you do that, look, don't go in with your X-Acto knife and start cutting and chopping and saying, well, I like that, but I don't like that part. You can't do that. Listen, let's think about what this book says. First of all, it claims to be from the infinite God who created everything. This book. Okay? Now, it's written over thousands of years. It has one central message. God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, became a man. Went to the cross. Died for the sins of the world, all of them. Past, present, and future. Paid them in full. Rose on the third day and has ascended to heaven. He's going to come back and he's going to rule this earth forever. You understand what that's saying, man? Now, imagine, you know, God goes to the trouble writing all that down, talking about stuff that happened before it happened, and it got fulfilled exactly to the letter. Hundreds of them. Uh, what, this God who managed to do this, you know, spin all the stars into existence, goes, whoops, uh-oh, Sorry. It got all messed up. You know, I wasn't paying attention. You know, it was good when it was first written, but um, 
I didn't really notice. And they came in and they changed it all around. Come on, get real. That means you don't really understand what this book is saying or you wouldn't be saying stuff like that. Okay? Like C.S. Lewis who said, either Jesus is on the level of a fried egg and a lunatic or he's telling the truth. Let's not have any of this other crazy stuff. And that's what you need to believe, you see. That's it. Real simple. This is God's word, and he wants to be believed, just like you do. You like to be believed when you say something, right? God's no different. God claims to have spoken here about a lot of stuff, and about you, and about how you can know him. And he says there's only one way, by the way, and it makes sense when you understand it, and it's through Jesus Christ, and there's no other way. Okay? And that's another thing that people don't like to hear. And that's another way people uh, get divided over Jesus. You know, they don't, they don't like to hear this narrow-minded stuff about Jesus being the only way. Listen, there shouldn't be any way. <laughs> and, the, and the one way cost God infinitely. Okay? By the way, brothers and sisters, let me tell you. Um, in witnessing... Somebody, I, I've had this many times. If somebody says to you, oh, I don't believe the Bible. Don't worry. Don't worry about that. I can't tell you the number of times I hear that. I say, oh, okay. And then I just start reading the Bible. No, I'm serious. I think I've told you about the guy over in San Mateo back uh, on Monday night visitation at Fairhaven. When they ran out of uh, visitors on Sunday who would fill out the little card and ask for a visit, then uh, some of the saints at Fairhaven would fill out the card and say, uh, listen, I got this Uncle Joe, lives over in San Mateo. I think he needs a visit. That's not fun. But when they ran out of people to visit, that's the kind of card you'd get on Monday night to go visit. I got one. I was leading the group. This guy's in San Mateo. Okay, that's no small drive from San Leandro. And we get over there and uh, knock on his really fancy house in, in San Mateo up in the hills there. And I say, uh, good evening, uh, we're from Fairhaven Bible Chapel in San Leandro. Uh, I believe uh, you have a niece named so-and-so, you know. Um, she thought that you might be interested in a visit. Oh, man. It was like, what? But the guy at least was, and God was at work, okay, because the God broke through. And he said, well, okay, you've driven a long way. Go ahead and come in. But look, I'm telling you right now, I'm not interested in what you have to tell me. And so we went in, and I just started talking to him. And I brought up the Bible. He said, look, don't talk about the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. You know, and just let it roll off like water off a duck's back. That's okay. Most people don't. Okay. And we got around, and I uh, kind of put him at ease. And pretty soon I was sharing the gospel with him from the Bible. And he was listening. Two hours later, when we left, he gave me a hug. And he said, thank you for coming. I never knew that was the message of the Bible. Now, I'd like to tell you, he fell on his knees and got saved. He didn't. But, man, the word of God has a power like you cannot believe. And I could see it over and over again that night as a verse would just hit him right between the eyes, you know. He might have gone on and gotten saved. I don't know. But listen, don't be apologetic about this book. Man, it's the word of God. What does it say? It's alive and powerful. Alive and powerful. Use it. 
Several times, even quite recently, I had a guy who said, who said I don't even want to see the Bible. Don't, don't even open it. That's fine. Just quote it. The words are the same if you memorize, aren't they? Hello? That's fine. And that's what I did. By the way, that's an encouragement to do what? Memorize it. You got it. That's right. Carefully, word by word now. Okay? If you've never done that, if you've never really gotten in a disciplined way, start with, uh, is Don here? I think they still have the, the gospel packets. Start with that. There's a little packet of verses. And uh, he used to have those. And he might be able to tell you how you could get them. It's like, I don't know, 30 verses or something. And it's the gospel outline. Great place to start. The Word of God. You can't have Jesus without the Bible, okay? And you can't have the Bible without Jesus. He is the Bible, in a sense, you see? It's, it speaks of Him. Okay, well, uh, we're uh, getting late here, so we'll finish up. In verse 54, Jesus, it says here in verse 54, Then He also said to the multitudes. That's important because... Back in uh, verse 41, notice, Jesus has been talking, and Peter said to him, you with me in verse 41? Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And so from 41 through 53, Jesus is speaking to Peter and the disciples, his followers, okay? But now in verse 54, he turns to everybody, the multitudes, the crowds that were always around him. And he's going to give them two warnings. That's what these are, these two passages. The first one is about weather. Verse 54, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is, hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? It's kind of neat here because uh, we have what's called a Mediterranean climate here as they do in Israel because it's next to the Mediterranean. And they're east of the Mediterranean Sea, you know that. And so the nice cool breeze comes in in the summer from the west, just like it does here from the Pacific Ocean. It's nice, isn't it? Nice God's little air conditioner here. Um, but, you know, in the winter, that's also often where our storms come from, and so it was there. Sometimes we get them from the north, from Alaska, but often they come in off the Pacific. And they can, you know, send the radar out there and they can see the stuff coming. And we're very getting pretty good at it, you know. Uh, the poor weathermen, they always get a bad rap anyway, you know. But generally they can tell when there's a storm coming. And Jesus says, yeah, you guys are really good at that. And the other one he talks about is the south wind. Now that's different from here. Here, uh, my wife and I, we'll, we'll go out and we'll say, uh-oh, the wind's coming from the east. That's the... Central Valley, right? It's going to be hot, isn't it? You know, we know that. That's where the heat is. And when the wind's coming from the east, we go, oh boy, it's going to be hot. And sure enough, you know, that night we'll go outside, there's not a leaf stirring on the trees, you know. You can just feel it. And it's a scorcher the next day. Well, Jesus says, you guys are really good at that. You can look at the, these signs and you say, yeah, the weather's going to be such and such. But then he rebukes them. He says, you don't discern this time. What's he talking about? That's real simple. There are other signs that they've been ignoring. The things that Jesus has said and the things that Jesus has done. You know, little things like raising people from the dead, uh, calming the, the Sea of Galilee, you know, 
healing people blind from birth, paralytics. We couldn't, we couldn't count them. The probably tens of thousands of people that he's healed perfectly. Lepers. We could go on and on. All the miracles, you know, water to wine and so on. Little signs like that. Okay? And he's rebuking me, saying, man, it's, it's staring you right in the face. You say, winds from the west, we're going to have a, a storm. Uh-oh, winds from the south, it's going to be hot. But they don't say, look at this guy, he raises the dead, he does all these miracles. This is the Messiah. It's like, well, he can't be the Messiah. Hello? He's rebuking them. Listen, it's not out of ignorance that they didn't know who he was. And it's not out of ignorance if you don't know Jesus Christ and you haven't come to him. It's not out of ignorance that you haven't come to know him and that you don't know God. And you don't have enough signs. Listen, I'll tell you right now, you got more than enough signs. And if you examined your heart and your life, you'd admit it. You could look back on your life and see all the times God has tried to speak to you. And you said, no, I don't want to hear it. I'm busy right now. I got things to do. I don't want God in my life. I've told you before about how I got saved, and I had a very serious accident in July 1969. I never went to church. I never read my Bible for 25 years, okay? So I don't think, oh, well, you grew up in a Christian family. No, I did not. When I talked about Jesus and God, it was to take their names in vain, to my shame, okay? When I had this serious accident, and I, it was pretty bad, and I finally woke up, I've said this before. I didn't need Billy Graham standing over me telling me I knew that God had caused that accident to wake me up. How did I know that? There was something weird. I don't know if I told you this. I don't know how to put it. I knew that God was right there with me and had been my whole life. I recognized him. It was scary. You understand? This God that I've been trying to push out of my life. It was like, oh man, he is so familiar. It scared the daylights out of me. Because when I realized that, and I look back and realize I didn't care a fig for him. I wanted nothing to do with him. Conclusion. <laughs> I knew I was going to hell. And man, the sooner he sent me there, the better for his sake. I just knew it. Now, I didn't instantly get saved. It took another two years of God working in my life. We're, we're tough people. You know, we're resilient. Man, God can try working on us and we'll just resist and fight back. Pride, arrogance. Aren't we? I'm the first one to admit it. Praise God he didn't give up on me. But what I'm saying here is, when you face God, you're going to recognize him. You're going to see Jesus Christ on that great white throne. And it's going to be something like, oh man, I know this guy. He's been with me my whole life. He is so familiar. He's my God. And I fooled myself into thinking I could avoid him. And it's going to be too late. But that's the element I don't think people realize. Listen, what does what is, uh, uh, Paul say? In him we live and move and have our being. <laughs> He's a lot closer to you than you'd like to think. What does it say in uh, Isaiah? Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, 
who gives breath to the people on it. That means you. Every breath, he's right there giving it to you. And you know it. And spirit to those who walk on it. That's what makes you, you. He's holding you together. He's no stranger to you. He's the nearest one to you. Better to come to Jesus now, huh? <laughs> Man. I can't imagine the fear and dread that are going to be in people when they see Jesus Christ in his glory and see him as judge with no hope. It's going to be too late. The second warning has to do with the debt. Uh, <clears throat> verse uh, 58, when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. What's he teaching them about here? Finances? No. With a phrase we use today is an out-of-court settlement. You heard of that, right? You know, uh, somebody is uh, against somebody else and, and they're going to go to court and they know they're going to lose. And they're afraid of what the judge might make them pay. And so they go to the other party and they say, uh, look, let's talk about this. You know, how about uh, $150,000? And the other guy says, well, come on, you know the judge will probably slap you with $5 million. Well, uh, I don't know, but um, just in case, let's make it 500000 You know, and the bottom line is you've heard this thousands of times. You hear that somebody had a problem with somebody else, and all you know is they settled it out of court. Okay? And that's a good thing often for the guy who's uh, going to have to pay, because you often pay probably less than you would have if you'd gone to court. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Here's the situation. You got this guy who is going to have to pay a guy something. By the way, it doesn't necessarily mean that he borrowed money. This could be some kind of Old Testament law, some kind of debt, where the guy's crops got damaged or he lost an animal because of something the guy did. It could be something that he had done to the other guy, you see, but for which he's going to have to pay, you see. And Jesus says, look, and so he's picturing them walking together to court. And the guy who's going to be uh, responsible for paying, he advises him, says, look, it'd be better for you to work out a deal with the guy who's going to sue you outside of court and pay him now and get it settled. Rather than going into court and the judge throwing you into prison because you haven't got enough to pay and you're going to languish there. Sounds like good advice, right? You know what Jesus is talking about? He's not talking about money. He's talking about sin. He's still talking to the multitudes, to the people who are not following him, who have not got him as their savior. And if that's you, here's the picture he's portraying. You're walking with God to court right now. That's where you're headed. How do I know that? Well, once again, Calvary Bible Chapel. We're going to use this book, Hebrews 9. It is appointed unto man once to die. You're going to die once. I'll promise you, you're going to die unless you're a Christian and Jesus comes first and you get raptured, but that's another story. I can tell you, if, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to die. Okay? And he says, it's appointed unto men once to die. He says, but then after this, the judgment. Guaranteed. 
So there are not two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. There are two things that are certain, death and judgment. Okay? And so you're, that's where you're going. You're on your way right now. And listen, you've offended this guy, God. You owe him for what you've done to him. You think you could count the number of sins you've committed against God in your life? Oh, man. You don't even know them all. There's a penalty for every one of them. You're, you're committing them right now. And you're walking to court with him. And, you know, if you're like this, this guy who's going, and said, well, I'll take my chances. <laughs> Dude, I tell you, there are no chances. You pay. It's that simple. But listen, it's not $10,000. It's not a million dollars. Listen carefully. It's eternity in hell. It doesn't end. It's called eternal punishment. Just like those who are saved and know Jesus Christ, it's eternal life. If you don't settle out of court right now, it's eternal payment. And there is no such thing as purgatory, by the way. That's made up by people. You know, there's no holding place, some temporary place where you go. That's not in the Bible. The Bible ends, the re revelation ends with a picture of heaven and the believers there with God forever. And then hell, it's called the lake of fire. And people are thrown into it. And then there's a few admonishing words and the book ends. And it never says anything about, and the people that were thrown in the lake of fire, give them a million years, and then they get out and they go to heaven too. Uh-uh. There's nothing like that any place in the Bible. So what God is saying, listen, you could pay me now, or pay me later. And you say, well, how can I pay now? Remember that baptism Jesus talked about, we talked about earlier, the cross? Listen, listen to this. Jesus has already gone to the cross for you. There was a moment in time when he was on that cross that your sins were being taken into account. You, put your name in the blank there. And Jesus was answering to the holy God for your sin, and he paid it in full. And now you can just come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell. Save me. I want to trust in that finished work of you on my behalf. I give my life to you. Here I am. Like I said, God's not out to lunch. He'll hear that. And you'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise right now. This very moment. There'll be a new person created right then. You'll know it. Your life will change. Doesn't that sound appealing? Doesn't it sound like a good deal? And if you said, well, no, I've waited this long. I can wait a little longer. Oh, boy. You better be careful. You know what God says to that person? He says, you fool. This night... Your soul will be required of you. Think about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much this morning for your word. And we just ask you that by your spirit, you might apply your word to each heart here according to the need. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.